So I just finished watching, actually for the second time now, The Social Dilemma. And um, I, I, I have this, <laughs> I have to fight this kind of resentment, this resentment that I have because I've been saying this. Anyone who knows me well, who knows me personally, I won't name any names, but you know who you are, knows that I've been saying this since easily 2010. And, you know, like in, in probably when I got back from Europe, uh, I, was, I, was, I was just struck by, and I was gone for roughly two years between 2017 and 2019. And of course, you know, I had a phone while I was in Europe and I had, you know, access to Google and, you know, I actually, I was using Google quite, I was quite dependent on Google because I didn't have a, my library with me. And so I needed an internet connection and a search engine to find articles and books and order books on Amazon. And so I was doing all this, but what I wasn't doing with the exception of like six months on Instagram that devolved into, you know, me like actually, you know, getting obsessed with taking travel photos and then, you know, getting obsessed with people, how many likes I got for my photo and my funny caption. And then I just realized I'm doing like that. That was like a little foray for me, which I can, I can partially excuse because it was the perfect environment to get Instagram obsessed when I, when you're traveling to ancient ruins and living in foreign exotic lands and you just want everybody to see that and the easiest thing to do is to put stuff on instagram and but even then like launching a blog and spending a little bit more time to produce more quality content is not difficult and i didn't do that but with the exception of that i wasn't on social media i wasn't following the news cycle and i wasn't keeping um a pace with the, tr- the social and cultural trends that were happening in the United States. And when I returned in 2019, even from 2017, I was just absolutely struck with the kind of weird, um, the, 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 the move basically, the degeneration as it were of the, of the online and therefore the national discussion. Like in two years from 2017 to 2019 where I was relatively unplugged, <clears throat> what I felt like my visceral feeling upon return was is that everything had devolved. The national discussion had devolved. The entertainments and the, 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 the obsessions on social media had devolved really intelligent people were sitting on Twitter, people that I really respect, and they were complaining about getting drawn into these, you know, sophomoric, infantile, pissing contests on Twitter. The next thing you know, which hadn't become, which sort of wasn't, was it was a deal, but not a big deal maybe in 2017. By 2019, like the, there's all this news about everyone. Everyone is just in in terrified of this cancel culture that's grown up around social media. And like in the midst of all this, the Silicon Valley companies are get, are just lining their pockets. Like all of this discord and all of this dysfunction in society, a lot of it's playing out on these major platforms. 
and everyone's getting rich in California. Nothing against California. I'm saying like the people who own major shares in Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, <coughs> Reddit to some extent, right? These major, major companies that are supposed to be delivering so much value and f- helping facilitate group communication, sharing, information exchange. Actually, all of that stuff is breaking down, like almost without fail across the board. Communication is getting more and more difficult. People are caught, like Atlantic ran, the Atlantic ran, and she actually was my former editor on a piece that, on a one-off piece that I wrote. Um, I can't remember her name now, but she's very, very nice and very, quali- very, uh, she's a very good editor. And she's a good writer. She did a huge expose on conspiracy theories and how it's like people are spending so much time now trying to combat the growth, the viral growth and spread of just complete bullshit information. And, you know, people are actually like, people are like basically are accepting ideas that like anyone with a third grade education would understand is completely like just completely asinine ideas. But because like we're, it's because people have gotten sucked in, like we, I should say, have all, all of us have gotten sucked so far into this, that standards of, of relevance and truth and, you know, ideas of having like a national discussion where you have some shared values, all this stuff has got, had gotten eroded by 2019 And like for the first time, like I said, I've been saying this since 2010, almost verbatim what the social dilemma is, you know, the, the, the topics covered in this I've been talking about at least like I was one of the early, um, people who read Lanier, his first book, uh, you are not a gadget where a lot of these same kind of ideas that you you know, we're sort of, there's this kind of, there's this kind of redefinition of a person as being a component of a network, right? And so, and the, the, the idea is, is that you need the proper functioning of the components of the network to extract the value from the whole. And so you yourself as a individual, right? Like this, you know, this, the idea of the, the old Lockean idea that people have like are endowed with rights and, you know, have, you know, and have, and have, uh, and have purpose and value, individuals do, like the cornerstone of democracy is based on this, right? So uh, all this kind of stuff is like, no, that's not actually what you want. You don't want that because the one thing, what is the one thing that's the enemy of a manipulation model to extract advertising dollars from behavior, from changes in behavior towards some goal, to optimize uh, the nodes on the network to behave in such a way as to raise revenue. That's the business model. And what's the one thing that threatens that it's defining someone as, as having a high capacity for intelligent, independent, autonomous choice, right? Like that's what you've got to get rid of the very principle that undergirds a, a democracy and makes it successful. The idea that we are, you know, autonomous individuals with which who have free choice and can come together on the basis of shared facts and information and make decisions as individuals and thereby comes the power of the group the democracy otherwise it's a mob 
or it's a herd, you know? And, and so like, that's the very thing you have to eliminate to get maximizing profits model off the ground for these companies. So like the, the, the companies kind of walked into this thing looking for business models. It's very clear that this happened. I was in on this on the ground floor. Like I saw this happening. I saw Google when they had first the algorithm and then AdSense came out under pressure of the original investors who were saying, look, you know, Sergey Brin and Larry Page were saying, look, we're grad students at Stanford. We want to give information to the whole world. They had this huge utopian model and they took venture capital. And by 2001 or 2002 or something, the investors were like, you can't, you know, you like the, the idea was that you would grow your user base to a hundred thousand, then a million, then 10 million, you know, and you have these orders of magnitude of the user base. And then that's going to translate into profit that has to translate into revenue and then profit. And there's no possible way of doing that when they originally had, uh, they were inimical and resistant to uh, placing ads and they were, um, and they, they wanted to, like they had no prop, they had no business model and that had to change because the investors weren't going to put that money in um, just for the growth of the user base. There had to be a profit that came along with that. And there was only one way to do it. And actually this social dilemma, the Netflix um, documentary actually points this out. The guy, one of the execs for Facebook said this, like it was a brilliant, I remember when it came out and thinking that is really, really elegant. That's really brilliant. They use the same idea to place context relevant ads. They basically, they effectively extended the, the, the concept of the algorithm that computes relevance on a network they effectively use that same kind of relevance insight to, to place context relevant advertising in, you know, without resorting to banners. And so what you type actually determines what you see. So that, that sounds sort of, you know, old hat in circa 2020, but in 2001, 2002, that was a fantastic idea, right? So, you know, it's one thing like it's one thing if you have a web page and it's like for, you know, I don't know, for travel, uh, you know, it's it's for travel to Central America or something like that. And you see lots of ads for, you know, tours to see old volcanoes and cheap airfare to, you know, Mexican resorts and, and Costa Rica and so on. Like that all makes sense. You the advertiser knows the topic uh, of the web pages and then the ad placement follows from that. But if you have somebody typing in keywords, they can go to a thousand different websites over the course of a week or certainly a hundred over the course of a week. And so you, what you want to do is, is you want to determine, you want the ads to follow them everywhere they go on the web, the ads are following them, right? So whatever you type in, if you type in, uh, you know, DIY, you know, I don't know, you know, fuck fish tanks, sinks, I don't know, whatever. Uh, you get, you know, ads for Home Depot. And if you type in, you know, uh, I care, you get, you know, 
two for one lenses. It just, it doesn't matter. Like whatever you type in, you're presented with ads that are contextually relevant to the content of the words that you, that you input. And that was the idea. And that was elegant. And the problem was, is that in getting the investors an answer to their, give me a profit. The problem is, is that they're, they, they were so good and so smart about how they did that, that they began, they kicked off one of the greatest in most self-destructive debacles in the history of the union, I'm convinced. I've been saying this for a decade. It's like, like you have to feel this problem. You have to understand the significance of this problem. And once you see what happened through nobody's fault, you don't have to find a boogeyman. All you have to do is point to the natural progression of events given the power of the internet as it, as, it, as it emerged in early 2000s and given the power of big data and Moore's law. So we had computers to crunch that data and algorithms to tailor results in that day and find patterns in that data. Once you accept that that's what was happening and that was the revolution in computation and in society, right? Then all this stuff is just gonna follow it's not going to be, you don't need to point to a big boogeyman. But the problem is, is that early on people, and it, it, I'm sorry if this sounds self-serving, but not so sorry, because I really was saying this. Even back in 2005, I was beginning to realize that innovation opportunities were drying up. This was right before I started my own company. And it was while I was doing a ton of work in tech as a scientist, as a computer scientist. And like I started realizing, wait a minute, like it's kind of silly now to be thinking about alternatives to Google. Google just, you know, very rapidly captured such a huge part of the market space that, you know, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to think about like uh, a competitor. And, you know, after after the after Friendster, which was the initial social network, which is very similar to what Facebook became. After that failed, Facebook had a smarter model where they released it first only under .edu websites because Friendster actually just, it became so popular so quickly that the whole thing tanked. They just couldn't keep up with demand. And so they couldn't, the, if you're, nobody's going to sit on a page and wait for 30 seconds for it to load. And that pretty much, that tanked that idea. But Facebook came along in what, 2004? And by 2006 or 2007, they were just massive and they scaled their growth. And then by 2008 or 2009, you couldn't think of a social network anymore. I mean, you just like, there was a point where you just like, okay, like there is no, you know, um, we have like, there is no lift to, you know, Facebook's Uber anymore by like, Certainly by 2010, like that game was up. So I was noticing that the web was supposed to unleash all this creative energy and was supposed to make possible all of this wonderful innovation. And it had the actually, it had the opposite effect. There was a few, there was a winner take all environment that quickly emerged in early to mid 2000s and then had to have lock in by 2010. And, and it's like, that's not what everybody was talking about. All the culture critics and the intellectuals and everyone that I was reading, the Shirkies and, and um, you know, the Yokai Benkler and Harvard. There's a bunch of these guys that came out 
Uh, the guy, uh, Sass, uh, uh, Cass, uh, Suskin from Harvard and, uh, uh, yeah, Infotopia and all these, these titles. There's a ton of them. Jeff, uh, oh, I guess it goes way back. Jeff Dean, I think that was my old editor. Actually, there was a, there was a guy, what was his name? Jarvis, Jeff Jarvis. There we go. And, you know, everyone was talking about how we were going to have this, they were, we were going to have this, uh, this innovation unleashed because of this new model. And it turns out that they were, they were actually, they were, they were running down the wrong path. They didn't see what was coming around the corner. They didn't see that innovation was quickly drying up. And so those books, I think, actually, I was just talking about this with a friend earlier today. I think that whole climate of this excitement, this kind of Wikipedia-like excitement that there was going to be this massive commons, um, you know, social social production in this commons environment made possible by user-generated content, and so on. Like I think, like that that sort of that sort of bubble that pushed out ahead of the tech companies' growth for in a way and created a kind of context within which for people to see what was happening and to make sense of it. Like that was a false narrative. That wasn't what was happening, but it created enough of that for people to take their eye off the ball and the tech companies were growing exponentially. And so like you see by 2010, you get lock in, you get Facebook and Google locked in the biggest search engine in the world, the biggest social network in the world. And then you see the rise of Twitter and Instagram and all these in the early 2010s. And then at the same time, you see this immediate, like just turn off the the valve, right? Like just turn the spigot off, like just end of all that literature. Like just, it just was over by 2010. No more Infotopia, no more, you know, here comes everybody. No more the wealth of networks, like no more any of this, no more the wisdom of crowds by Surowiki, right? He's just like, it was just gone because everybody realized that wasn't the game anymore. But there was never a point where, and this has always baffled me, there was never a point where people turned to the reader and they said, hey, we were wrong. Like, that's not what happened. What happened was, is we got a massive and rapid an unforeseen takeover in a winner-take-all situation that led to the equivalent of monopolies from these companies, and they've locked into business models that are ad-driven and attention extraction machines is effectively what's happened. So now we're not going to make possible greater innovation. We're going to suck innovation dry. We're going to suck everything dry. For with with the the with our tech infrastructure now we're working against building a better world, building a better society, and like that's exactly what happened. But nobody turned around and said, "Oh fuck, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have read that, written that book, and I shouldn't have been promoting what what it turns out to have been a cover for this to happen." Like under the under the cover of this kind of intellectual movement. And nobody, none of this was a conspiracy. It was just what was going on. People were groping to make sense and to, and to predict and to see what was going to happen. And it was right there. I was actually in, by 2010, I was actually in living in Palo Alto. 
and, you know, would have three or four discussions about how everybody was going to change the world. But even by 2011, I would go to tech conferences. I had a company and we were primarily DOD funding. So it funded. So I wasn't in the VC game directly, but I talked to VCs and we were looking at opportunities and feasibility for doing VC with the tech we had. And like, even by, I would say by, certainly I would say by 2011, all of the discussions, which you, if you would, if you went back to 2001, 10 years back would have been about these huge ideas, right? Like these change the world ideas. And then by 2011, people were talking about downloading apps onto your phone. Like the, the, every, like the, the venture, the VC people started complaining that the big ideas they were getting were like tweaks to existing technologies and, and games that you could play on your cell phone. And the entire industry just went into this like mindless, you know, like it's just like this dramatically unintelligent effectively mode and like that never, like nobody ever, there was never, this is the thing when I look back on these years, the thing that was most surprising to me was first the rapidity of the change itself and the devolution of, of, of the innovation climate of the early 2000s. And then secondly, like no, no one ever turned to the camera and said, oh, we were all wrong. And this isn't what we meant by innovation. And there is no wisdom of the crowds, right? It's like no one ever, it was like suddenly we were everything, like it seemed like the entire Western world at any rate was swept up in something that became the new normal without any approving discussion. It just, it just happened so quickly that it just became, it became what everyone did and no one questioned. And then like, I was just like, what the WTF, you know, like, I, like, I, I, I'm not, again, like I'm not trying to promote like my, I'm just saying, I'm trying to give a semi-biographical account, autobiographical account of this because it's so, I think it's important that to see like, I, like what I saw to like actually share that information to other people, what I saw and how it happened was very disorienting and very quick. And there wasn't really a discussion that followed along with it and made sense of it. And by 2015, it was too late. I don't think there, like <laughs> the jig was up. Like there was no, like there was no wisdom of crowds. And by 2015, even the remembrance of the, the earlier expectations had ceased to be a part of the day-to-day -day discussion in the tech world. Things had turned like it was just taken for granted that we had Google supplying a search that wasn't a field with opportunity for competitors. And it was just taken for granted that, you know, Facebook with two billion, whatever, how many viewers that that is what we mean by a social network. Right. And then everything, of course, was talking about how AI and then people got to get started getting really scared about AI, which I think was just was just a kind of. Um, was in a sense, it was like a self, it was a, a subconscious uh, admission, right? A concession that tech was getting out of control, but it wasn't the fucking, you know, the Terminator with the super like Lanier says like the giant brain, 
it was it was that we were losing control of our own ability to be autonomous free thinking people and we were we were feeling the power of a network that was becoming powerful in part by treating us as mindless cogs to be manipulated. And so it's like, yeah, there were all these tech fears that found expression in Frankensteinian visions. And I wrote a book about this. I mean, I actually wrote a book about how AI isn't going to become intelligent in that cognitive sense. And so that's that's a different subject. But all the fear around the, the coming AI and the super intelligence. And I, I remember seeing Bostrom in Seattle in 2014. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, here we, we've gone from like the wisdom of crowds uh, to, you know, the super intelligence going to, to, you know, take over the world and exterminate us like vermin. You know, you know, in the course of roughly the next this decade from 2005 to roughly 2015, like we're just missing the basic point. Like this thing is like flying under the radar everywhere we look. Now everybody's scared that the machines are going to become too smart when in fact it turns out that you're, be, you know, the humans are going to become too dumb. Like it's going in the other direction. Like everybody's getting, you know, like we, we're losing our, you know, we're, we're, we're losing the ingredients that we need to, to change the world in our image. And we're generating a bunch of nightmarish fears about the machines who are going to become too smart, which is just a proxy for us just losing control of our own fucking designs and our own fucking infrastructure and, and our own, you know, it's so, so our own future, you know? And so, yeah, it's just been, it's been a wild ride for me since 2000, the last two decades. And, you know, I got out of tech completely between about 2012 and 2016 for about four years. And, you know, I, I had some idea that ended up being, um, part of an education website it was a core algorithm, actually. It was an interesting idea that used some features of Wikipedia to calculate influence. And and then I got, and then now I'm back in tech. And I don't mind doing tech stuff, but I wouldn't work on attention maximizing, attention extraction engines. I would never work on that kind of thing. I wouldn't mind, you know, working on recommendation systems and in, in the Netflix context. Yeah, that's roughly what I'm doing now or building knowledge bases or extending knowledge base and ontology tools. And it's roughly what I'm doing now. Like I don't have a, I don't have a philosophical objection against technology and technology development and, and certainly not innovation, but I definitely think that and agree with the, the, the documentary that like there is what, you can only describe as an existential threat in the sense that we are undermining our ability to solve, to come together and solve the kind of problems we need to solve in the 21st century. And there's a litany of them and we all know what they are. And so we are, we are creating an impossible climate culturally and nationally and globally for anyone to be able to do anything other than to continue to devolve into raw emotion and a 
impoverished view of what it means to be a person, what it means to be a country, what it means to be a social group. Like we are just devolving into fractured, wounded, sick, cancerous constituents of tech tech infrastructure. And, you, you know, we are de- we are devolving into the kinds of people who, I mean, in a very real sense, we're, we're returning to this kind of tribal pre-enlightenment, pre-enlightened idea of ourselves and our possibilities. And it's just, it's like on the heels of this supposedly enlightened technology. And it's anything but. It just, I don't know how to say it. I, I don't know, I don't know how m- much more emphasis I can give that you would like that this needs to get direct, you know, addressed more directly. And it never really has. Like there are lone wolves, lone voices out there like Lanier and to some extent Nick Carr and there are others. And some of these founders who have come out publicly uh, on the on the documentary, The Social Dilemma, you know, there are these people who have come out and said like, this is just insanity and we need to do something and I've tried to make these cases, but in general, like the culture and the society just doesn't take on this issue and we don't ever get reform. And it's like, we have to do this. We are not going to be able to, we're not going to be able to set a future goal, a goal for the future and meet it. We're going to continue to move towards dissension and fraction and fraction, you know, and being fractured. We're going to continue to move in that direction and there's nothing that's going to stop it unless we stop this. We can't do anything like this is the other and I guess I'll end with this. When people talk about how the political system is broken and call call me, you know, maybe I'm, you know, too much of a, you know, a, a, a technology, a technologist myself to be able to, you know, see these broader realities. But when people talk about the political system in the United States being broken and being fractured and so on. Today, I hear mostly that we 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 create we have a commu- a social and communications infrastructure that pretty much everyone uses day to day, hour to hour. That is makes it almost impossible to make progress politically. Like there's just no fucking way that the political system is going to get better, and the institutions are not going to erode. Like there's just no way as long as we keep doing this. It's like there, it's like right there. Like that's the reason, like that's what I hear. Like say anything you want about the problems that we're having on the Hill, the, you know, the inability of the Congress and the executive office, the bull, you know, all of the, all of the complaints about our current president, you know, like say all that you want about all that stuff. And I'm saying that under that, and more and basically driving that and making it impossible to reform any of that at the as a political set of institutions and behaviors right is this tech stuff it's like that bad and again the only thing i can say in defense of this being not a dramatic or or oversaid you know or a case that's been overmade is simply that name anyone on the fucking planet that isn't constantly plugged in and using these technologies, including me right now. Like name anyone that's not 24 hour a day with the exception of whenever you're sleeping basically, constantly 
using these technologies. And if you find out that they're effectively manipulation engines at root and you're constantly using them, then it's just like it's an easy modus ponens. It's an easy argument to figure out that we've got a major problem. And that's what I've been saying for fucking years. I don't even know if I want to write about it because I'm so just, I'm just so exasperated with trying to make this argument over the years. And, you know, I'll write, I might write about something sort of that integrates in this tech idea with some other ideas about how Western, the world, maybe since the Enlightenment, has changed through the Industrial Revolution, maybe a broader lens on tech and where we're at now, of which this is an important, this last two decades is a really critical component of that, something like that. But anyway, that's what I have to say for, uh, for this broadcast. I have been thinking a lot about the political problem today, and I don't have anything much worked out, although I can say that there are some books that I've read in the last, say, six months that have been helpful. Uh, uh, The political philosopher and political scientist at Stanford, Francis Fukuyama, who wrote back in the 90s, um, he wrote uh, the, what was it? The End of Democracy? I can't even remember now. And The Last Man. The End of History, sorry. I I don't take notes when I do these things, so who knows what the heck's going to come out of my mouth. The End of History and The Last Man, which I thought was brilliant. Um, And then it was, it was, after 9/11 i think a lot of a lot of people went back and used that as an example of short-sighted thinking on the part of uh in a you know an american intellectual like fukuyama and i think they were wrong to do that basically what he argued in the end of history was that um in terms of political organization a liberal democracy and by liberal I don't mean on the american political spectrum of left and right I mean liberal as in as opposed to the aristocracy and the king <laughs> um as in the idea that we all have equal status under the law the rule of law um empowerment for political power through vote and so on the basic constituents of a constitution he argued that the the final the sort of there was no better organization politically than a liberal democracy and so whatever flaws we found in liberal democracy all of the any attempts to replace it with some other uh political organization would be actually going backwards and so hence the end of history not that history was coming to an end as in the human race was coming to an end but that our our search since basically the beginning of civilization for a a, a political structure within which we could live and thrive will do no better probably given given who we are given the planet and given uh, given everything we know about our social our social being our social organization our our the ways in which we organize socially the best we will be able to do is something like a liberal democracy which as churchill famously put it is not perfect but it's just better than everything else so he he sort of 
he sort of argued that. And then he took up as the big challenge to liberal democracy something called thumos, which is a word that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and where uh, Plato argued that part of the, there's a tripart division of the soul into desire and rationality. And then there was a third uh, part of the soul that seeks recognition. And he called that thumos. And thumos is different than uh, being thirsty when you're, when you don't, when you, you know, wanting water when you're thirsty and it's different than reasoning through a problem and using your mind to be, to be rational and to calculate things based on what makes sense. Thumos doesn't necessarily make sense and it is not simply reducible to say economic need as many economists would have it. So if you're in the Marxian tradition, you'll say that ultimately everything that's wrong with people is, is that they're, they're denied in, in you know, whatever society they find themselves in, they realize that they're the have-nots uh, in, in terms of material wealth. And so since we, want, we need material wealth to satisfy our desires, hunger, thirst, so on, finding a good mate, like almost everything involves money in modern society, then being a have-not in that structure is going to basically be the, the, the root of all evil. And so, but if you're, if you're looking at the soul in, in the way that Fukuyama does, tracing it back to the ancient, ancient Greeks, that you're going to say that there's this leftover part that's actually more fundamental, which he calls a desire for recognition, or in the Greek, uh, thumos. And so Fukuyama was important for me because he argues, he wrote a book, in fact, um, more recently in 2014, I think, called Identity, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. And what he's arguing is, is that we can't really make sense of what's going on in our modern liberal democracy circa 2014. And I think it's even more relevant today unless we see the struggles and the discussions as being a, a an expression, a very, very basic expression of thumos and not, not economics, and not certainly a, a purely rational discussion. So someone like Sam Harris, who thinks that what we need to do is come together and reason, while admirable, I think, is probably not understanding that these more basic parts of our soul, whether you take soul metaphorically or metaphysically, doesn't really matter in this case, are, are really what's driving the discussion. It's really what's driving all the creation of our, of the tension and the problems. So Fukuyama has been very important uh, for me in understanding that people are desiring this kind of recognition. Now, the problem with desiring recognition is, is it's only gonna, it can only take a few forms in society. And effectively, it, ha it, the, it functions only by interconnection or it functions only in community. So you can't get recognition unless there's somebody to recognize you. So you can't really satisfy your need for thumo, the, the thumos or the, I don't know, thumotic part of your soul in isolation. It comes out in society. So one of the things he mentioned is that the desire for recognition does not present itself as such a 
an insuperable problem if you're living in a traditional culture. So if you are, if you're born into a farming community, for instance, you have a role that's been assigned to you. You, you know, you're either, you know, overseeing the flock or you're planting the field or you're, you know, you're doing something that fulfills a role in the culture that's basically been assigned to you since you were born into your family. And so it never really comes up to you like who, it never really rises in your consciousness with any great force. Who am I and who am I compared to other people? You just are who you are in a social structure that functions as it functions. And that may seem boring and even a little bit tragic, but for many thousands of years, this is how the world worked. This is how people came to understand themselves. So with the Industrial Revolution, people start flooding into cities and they start taking jobs and then suddenly they don't have a comfortable placement in the social structure. They're sort of away from their families. They're now suddenly confronted with this question of who am I as an individual? And they can see around them much more clearly that there are many answers to this question. There's almost as many answers to this question as there are people asking in a, in a large city. And so you, you have, you develop this sense of, of, uh, this keener and more problematic sense of, uh, of your individual, who you are as an individual, as opposed to your functioning in a group. And that by degrees can lead to the expression of thumos overtaking the other parts of your soul in particular rationality and he Fukuyama thinks this is one of the key problems that we're having today um, so we don't have an answer to this question except for in a liberal democracy what he calls isothumos or everyone is equal in an aristocracy which won't you could argue that at least in a in a strict sense of the word or a, a kind of social structural sense of the word I don't want to get into gobbledygook language here, but I'm searching for the right words. You could you could argue that there are no more real aristocratic societies left, right? In the sense that people really take seriously that there are some people who are just better than other people. And, um, you know, that that almost seems like a weird foreign alien idea to us steeped as we are in a tradition of liberal democracy for the last 300 years and really going back into the common law tradition of England, which reaches back into the, uh, the Middle Ages. So, so aristocracy gives you an expression of megalothumia, which is a desire to be seen as better than other people, <laughs> right? And uh, isothumia gives you an expression of effectively what we mean by equal rights, a desire to be seen as equal in the eyes of other people. And so isothumia finds expression, although uncomfortably, in a liberal democracy, in, in the rights discussions, like, well, I have a right to, you know, like, what, just anything, like, why should women make 70 cents on the dollar? I have a right to make a dollar, you know, just any, name any pressing social issue that's, that is, that is 
a discussion about rights and you will find at the root of that some, some version of isothumia. I want to be seen as equal to you. And what Fukuyama says is that we, we exist on that sort of like walking on the, the edge of a razor, like we're, we're, it is extremely precarious situation to really, to have isothumia, isothumia functioning correctly. Because one of the problems with it is the desire to be seen as equal to everyone else is that we're not equal. And the one of the main reasons we're not equal is that the production of excellence in the society is not uh, uniformly distributed. So let me say that in English. Some people do better things and more important things and are smarter and prove it. And they do that. And you can see it. Not everyone solves, you know, centuries old physics problem like physics problems like Einstein or invents the modern computer like Alan Turing in Britain or John von Neumann, who's of Hungarian descent, but of course was part of the Manhattan Project. He helped work on the bomb and also helped develop one of the world's first digital computers that actually was able to use its stored memory in the, the program that you write actually also contains the memory, which basically is the modern computer. And he's one of the first, I think, for that design. And you can go on and on and on to people who are, you know, able to, you know, be intelligent and effective leaders in the society, business leaders, scientists, writers, artists, Olympic gold medalists, like people, you know, people produce excellence. They pursue and produce excellence. And some are better at that than others because of gifts that they have. Uh, through no fault of their own. So you have an, you have, you're confronted immediately with an unequal distribution of excellence. And um, that pro that causes an immediate problem for the desire for recognition. Now, if the desire for recognition isn't paramount, if it's not the thing that everybody is striving for and everybody is, 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 exercised by and animated by and angry about, then it's not such a problem. But if this is the thing that is driving a discussion in a nation such as it is today, such as our nation, then it needs to find an expression. And if, and it can't, and it's confronted with the problem that some people basically just as a, as a, simple observational fact, some people just are better than other people at a lot of things. So you have to root somehow the idea that we're equal, we're all equal under the law. And some, we, we have to root it in some very minimalist, very, very shrunken idea that no, we're not equal in the sense that I can run the hundred meter dash as well as, you know, Hussein Bolt. Right? No, I mean, I don't mean that by equality because clearly I'd be a lunatic. I can't do that. Um, I mean that, you know, if I'm accused of a crime and Hussein Bolt is accused of a crime, we're both equal under the law. So we have this sense in which we have equal recognition by the system in, that we live in, by the society that we, within which we live. Um, but the, so the problem with this, this is usually called that somebody like Thomas Sowell might call this like equal opportunity. And many people would call this like equal opportunity. So we have these rights that are sort of, that are, they're, they're not positive rights that I can have certain things, but they're negative rights that you can't take certain things away from me. 
and I, you know, like, so I, if I want to go and, and, um, you know, meet in public and if I want to exercise my free speech, I can write something and so on. So this is apart from excellence. This is just like, I am able to do things in a society that recognizes inalienable rights of individuals. And so that's where sort of our desire for recognition has to stay. It can't really, really move past that in any systematic sense. But what happens, of course, is, is that people aren't satisfied with that. And so it very easily and naturally spills over into a striving to find a way to be recognized as special somehow. So in a liberal democracy, and certainly in the United States, we see this everywhere in terms of like, I want to be recognized because of some group that I'm in that's not the group, not the, not the liberal democracy of which I am a member or the nation of which I am a citizen, but because of the color of my skin. So I'm not just a guy who has the right to free assembly. I'm a Swedish man in my case, right? Like, and so somehow this is my way of saying like, I deserve some special recognition as being a member of this group. And, um, oh, and by the way, this group is not recognized enough, right? And this group, and, and then you get into situations which are very understandable. I mean, some groups can point to a history where like, for instance, African-Americans point to slavery. Well, there is no more slavery. Slavery was banned in the, what, 17th century? No, sorry, 18th century. Uh, actually, no, that's not true. The importation of slaves was, it was banned outright after the Civil War in the 19th century. Well, that's over 100 years ago. That's 150 years ago. So what are we talking about? Well, the, the problem is, is that thumos, the desire for recognition, is not rationality. It's not looking at things like, yeah, that was done 150 years ago. And it's not just the idea of material, right? So an example, just a quick aside, an example that Fukuyama uses is, you know, in the Me Too movement, um, Marx would have a hard time understanding a woman who was rich and powerful and a man who was rich and powerful. And then the man looked at the woman only as how, you know, only for how she looked or in some physical way and didn't, you know, see all of her other gifts. And then therefore the, the woman felt extremely oppressed by that man in that situation and is indignant and, you know, it joins the Me Too movement because of something that happened, you know, in the office. But in fact, that, that woman having all the power of the society in an economic sense, that, that, doesn't, that would not make sense in the economic analysis or what, go, what Fukuyama traces back to our desire for material sustenance, money, basically. We're not going out and shooting our own food. So we need money in order to satisfy our desires for third, you know, our desire to not die of dehydration, you know, minimally and, and hunger and so on. Right. So, but that isn't an adequate analysis of Thumos either. Like the desire for recognition, as in the case of the woman who is, you know, she could be vice president of the company and she, and she has all the recognition in the world, but in some particular case, she feels victimized. Um, and so she must be identifying with something other than an economic or a rational idea. She must be identifying with this idea of, 
I'm a member of the, cl- of, of the class of women. Like I'm a member in this group of females and we have not been historically recognized in certain ways by this other group, the victimizers, the men. And so you, you ultimately, those kinds of discussions that play out endlessly on social media and in the, and in the workforce, in the office, outside the office, in politics, all those kind of discussions, and certainly, and probably most importantly, the discussion of ethnicity, all those are playing out in terms of this desire of recognition that doesn't make sense if you look at it in terms of fixing the law or if you look at it in terms of meeting needs and be having access to economic opportunity like none of those really none of that discussion really makes sense the the emotional quality of that discussion can only be understood as a exercise of of the desire for recognition or thumos and and of Thumos taking root in something that is no longer actually what's allowable and healthy in a liberal democracy, which is equal, equal opportunity economically and equal rights under the law. So we don't have prejudiced laws against race, the color of your skin, gender, and so on, disabilities and so on. All of that has been taken care of. It would be rather insane, quite frankly, to argue that we're living in a kind of world world that didn't take care of those sorts of legally you know equal opportunity economically and legally what we have instead is this idea that recognition was not satisfied by that liberal democratic idea and i think this is the real real threat to democracy itself it's a kind of existential threat to the modern world in fact is that people now are circling all the way back to that original idea of being in the village and then coming into the city and saying, who am I? And I need more recognition. I'm confused about who I am and I need to understand who I am in some sense that's been lost. It's been, there's some important sense in which this question has been unanswered, unanswerable and lost. And so, uh, now we see the most basic ideas have resurfaced only in the context of this large city. So now people are saying again, like my desire for recognition is rooted in the color of my skin and my tribe, right? But whereas if you really were in a tribe a thousand years ago, the, that would cause you no problem unless you came into contact with the other and then you would have some kind of skirmish or war or battle where you know those people with this color skin we these two different tribes you know will fight each other because of perceived differences and so on whereas in the past that would but that would never really enter into this crisis of identity in the village or in the tribe now we have how many tribes and all existing under this umbrella of liberal democratic principles of equality. And so the desire for recognition now making that the forefront issue is actually directly threatening the principles upon which we can all organize and, you know, form a single unitary discussion in society. We have to have shared, we have to have a shared language and shared culture and shared meaning in order for us to do this. And we have to all agree that our rights in the legal and political sense have been satisfied. So we're living in a roughly just society. What's left over is 
my desire for recognition. But if I root that in something like my past oppression, my status as a woman or a man, my status as a brown person or a black person or a white person, if, we, if I root that in something like that, we're never going to get satisfaction in a liberal democracy for questions like that. And there's going to be an interminable and, and, and never ceasing argument like a, like a scab that continually gets picked because it can't be satisfied. The only way to satisfy thumos in a modern society is through the pursuit of excellence. And that again is in a fundamental tension with the idea of an equality of, you know, equality of outcome or an idea that everybody can be equally recognized in the, the bigger sense. People can only be recognized in the minimalist sense in a modern society as having equal status under the laws of the of of the society they cannot be recognized in the sense of i want equal recognition for people who do better things for people who produce more excellent more excellence in the society we can't be recognized that way uh, if we were having that discussion then everybody would be sending their kids to the best possible school and we would be rooting out all of this political correctness post haste immediately because it would be threatening our clear vision of the goal we want to attain, which is to produce the most excellence we can, <laughs> which is the ultimate goal. Right. Um, but we, but, but, uh, so we're, so yeah, so we're in a situation where I think that what's governing what the, what's making people angry, it's expressed as all this rights talk, but the right stuff was satisfied. What's made making people angry is we're in this confusing situation of wanting of having thumos be the defining part of the discussion. This is the part of ourselves that we want to talk about. My identity, that's what I want to talk about. But we can't get anywhere by making that a tribal discussion, a discussion about gender or race or any of these things, disability, like any of those categories that are traditional politic, political categories, right? None of that stuff actually can be discussed in a clear way anymore because those laws have been fixed. So the discussion has to turn in this ugly way back to this kind of tribal situation where you find yourself living in a society where you can't get enough recognition. So you form a group and then you start getting and then you start becoming basically militant and angry that that group doesn't have the recognition it deserves. And that's a game you can't win. Not in a liberal democracy. It's a game that leads to war. It's a game that in tribal situations was only solved by they would remove each other geographically. Someone would go there and the other person would go over that hill. And we can't do that now. And so we have to find a, we have to find a way to get along. And you know what I'm struggling with is wow, how to convince people that they should stop, that's a bad game to be playing and they should stop playing it. How to convince people that what we wanna do is refix our sights on excellence, whatever the skin color, whatever the situation is for this, this, um, this desire for recognition that expressed itself tribally. However that stuff plays out, let's fix our sights on something that's excellent. Right. So just a final thought here. 
almost every period in history that experiences a re- renaissance, a renaissance, a return to the past, <clears throat> which is grounded in uncovering all that which was good, irrespective of tribalism and nationalism and so on, right? Every society that has taken seriously excellence and typically that involves looking for evidence of that in the great parts of the past. So the Renaissance in Italy was, ironically, it was a return to looking at the great literature, science, art, everything from the classic age, the Greek and Roman age. And it was ironic because the people who were actually spearheading that often were Christian monks people who were in charge of copying books and so on. And they were trying to uncover all this old um, Petrarch was, was someone who uh, did probably more advanced this cause than anyone else of uncovering all antiquity. And what he was looking for is not evidence of people having, you know, being Italian. He was looking for evidence of the Greek and Roman culture that produced excellence of looking for that in order to bring it back to life in the present era. He was looking for things that were independent of all the stuff we're talking about today. A great book is a great book is a great book. And so if you have that idea and then you have a kind of renaissance in your culture where you're striving to find the best and then to go even farther and to advance that goal, right? To produce excellence in the in your in the world, the contemporary world, and to aim for it in the future, like things are going to get better. Your society is going to grow strong in ways that you can't believe. On the other hand, if you do what Hitler did and you reach back into history in a racial sense, notice the connection between Hitler and so much of the discussion today. One of the supreme ironies is that one of Hitler's, probably Hitler's major flaw, besides being a little bit insane, and you know, megalomaniac. Um, what, but what it, the flaw in his thinking was that when you have a renaissance, you look back at the German people, the Germanic people, the people with blue eyes and blonde hair and so on. You know, and so when you look back in this tribal sense, you never get the society you want in the future and you never get what you're looking for. What he, what Hitler wanted to do was combine this this sort of national genetic racial idea of the German that what Nietzsche called the Ubermensch, the overman, this German who was naturally racially superior and who, by the way, who made, you know, made frequent, he made, he did make reference to Darwinism. And this was in the air in the 1930s when this was all happening and taking shape, this idea of the superior race. But when, Hitler's big mistake was to ground that idea, was to attach the idea of finding excellence in your history to the idea of, of your race. This is exactly what everyone is doing today. This is like, I'm not saying that it's going to become Hitlerized, whatever that means. I'm saying that it's a complete flaw. Like this is the flaw that has given us some of the worst ideas in modern history. And it's the one that everyone is embracing only now under the banner of some weird equality, which is some twisted version of Thumos, which is an impossible way to answer the question of identity in a liberal democracy. 
you know, faced with, this is, I'll end with this, faced with the satisfaction of the, of the equality of opportunity under law and, and, and under the politic, right, under politics, you then can only organize yourself in terms of this question of identity, in terms of this question of recognition. The only card you have left to play in a liberal democracy is the respect and the pursuit of excellence irrespective of recognition in any tribal sense. So to, to start grounding the discussion today in, tri- in these tribal categories is a fatal flaw for democracy. It's going to bring down the ship. And so that's what I'm working with.